turn to Jonah, you'll find it towards the end of the Old Testament, two-thirds the way through your Bibles. We'll also have the text in the bulletin and on the screens in front of you. Remember, Jonah is a prophet of God, a mouthpiece for God. Last week, we saw that God called Jonah to preach a message of judgment on the Ninevites. Nineveh was the baddest, most horrible place on earth, a wicked community who hated God and his people. Where does Jonah go? God calls him to Nineveh, but Jonah goes in the complete opposite direction towards Tarshish. But the ship never makes it there to the Spanish coast because God sent a storm that Jonah nearly manages to sleep through. But the terrified captain woke him up and eventually the sailors figure out that the storm was Jonah's fault and they throw him overboard. Jonah's treading water in the middle of the sea, no lifeboat, no life jacket. It was a death sentence. Divine discipline for a disobedient prophet. And that's where we pick it up today in chapter 1, verse 17. And in our passage, we'll see three things that Jonah does. Or another way to look at it, three things that happen to Jonah. Number one... Jonah awakens. Number two, Jonah believes. And number three, Jonah repents. Awakens, believes, repents. That's our outline this morning. Point number one, Jonah awakens. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. A fish swallows Jonah, but not to eat him. It wasn't dinner time. He wasn't seeing a plate of Jonah pancit in front of him. This fish was appointed by God to provide shelter for Jonah. Just like the storm was no accident, this fish is no accident. We're not told what kind of fish it was or how Jonah was able to survive inside it. We don't know. I don't even think Jonah knew. It's not like he was well acquainted with the insides of various fish. Maybe Jonah went to heaven with this on his top 10 questions to ask God list. I mean, it would be nice to know what kind of fish was it. But this information isn't in scripture, so it's not an issue of eternal life and death detail. We have no need to speculate. Was it a blue whale, a humpback whale, the original Shamu? We just don't know. Apparently, the point is not what kind of fish it was, but who sent the fish. This is not a story about a fish. Verse 2, from the ocean, Jonah called out to the Lord. Those are really the two main characters here in the book. Jonah calls out God's covenant name, Yahweh. Jonah's beginning to show some devotion. There's an awakening happening from his spiritual sleep. The man who didn't pray in chapter 1 is praying to the true God in chapter 2. Where does this prayer take place? Jonah reflects on the prayer from inside the fish, but it's recorded in the past tense. Jonah was thanking God for his deliverance and was looking back at his experience in the water. He says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried out. 
It wasn't the belly of the fish. It was in Sheol. In the Old Testament, Sheol is the place where the dead go. Jonah's praying from the depths of the ocean because it was as, he was as good as dead. He was on the verge of death. I mean, some of us may have this picture of Jonah falling overboard um, and on the way to the water, miraculously, this valiant sea creature jumps up and swallows Jonah before he hits the water. But that's not the case. Jonah would have been flailing his arms as he hit the water, trying to keep his head above it as the currents pulled him below. Eventually, Jonah was sinking down the ocean, down to the roots of the mountains, unable to breathe. Jonah presumed himself dead. Jonah says in verse 3, you cast me into the deep. Well, wasn't it the sailors who threw Jonah into the sea? I mean, I thought that they picked him up and threw him overboard. Well, I also remember Jonah telling them to do so. But Jonah says, no, it wasn't the sailors. It wasn't me. God did it. He doesn't say the waves, uh, the billows passed over me. He says, God, those were your waves, your billows. These waves were God's grace. The pounding of the water might not have felt like a gift from God in the moment, but divine discipline is a good thing. It may be hard, but remember what I said last week? The worst thing that could happen to Jonah is for God to do nothing and to allow him to perish in his sin. The worst judgment would be for God to let Jonah get to Tarshish. That would be the worst judgment because the very thing Jonah wanted to do would destroy him. I wonder if this hits close to home for you. Maybe there's something you wish you could have. A dream job. Citizenship in another country you've coveted. Maybe there's a person that you desperately want to know you and to acknowledge your existence. Freedom from a difficult marriage. Those high marks in school. And you're willing to do whatever it takes to get there, even if it means disobeying God. Maybe even the desire for those things is disobedience to God. But you think you deserve it, and you're crushed when it doesn't happen. Well, here's a question I thought about last night. What if most of my anxiety, stress, and discouragement is actually because I don't get what I want from God? What if a lot of my depression and discouragement is because I'm upset that I don't get something that I think I want, think I need, think I must have from God? And what if most of those things I want wouldn't be good for me anyway? I mean, if that's true of all of us, then one cure for discouragement is recalibrating our hearts to yearn for the things God wants for us. And think about this. The worst thing that could have happened to Jonah is if Jonah got what he wanted. Which was fleeing from God. Beginning of verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. And this is what Jonah wanted, right? 
to flee God's presence. But oh no, as he was getting there, he was digging his own grave. He's being driven away as Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden after they sinned. In a sense, that's what all sin is. It is fleeing God's presence. We turn away from God and justify ourselves as we try to find peace in something other than God. Jonah wanted this, but now that he's tasted the fruit of his rebellion, he realizes how bitter the aftertaste is. God's bringing him down to the bottom of the ocean to bring him back up to himself. Verses 5 and 6, Jonah says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever. Now Jonah can't save himself. He's on the very verge of death. Maybe the last few seconds, he's as good as dead. He says, those bars, they're closed upon me forever. There's no way out. It's over. Now maybe you don't feel like you're dying any minute, but perhaps you can relate to how Jonah's feeling. Maybe you're at the end of yourself. You feel like life's just crashing down around you. The waters of unemployment feel like they're going, to, they're going to take your life. The weeds of relationship issues are wrapped around your head. You're overwhelmed with the circumstances of your life, whatever they may be. You're treading water with the waves. They just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You may or may not be in disobedience at the moment, but either way, your trials are not meant to break you, but to make you. They're not meant to break you into pieces and to destroy you, but they're meant to make you more like Christ so that you would know him and share in his sufferings. And Jonah is starting to get it. In his deep distress, perhaps seconds from death, there's no accusation of injustice from God. He acknowledges that God is sovereign over all things. His waves, his billows. Friend, if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then in all of your trials, there is nothing God sends your way that is not for your good and for his glory. That's what Romans 8.28 is all about. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is a first sign that there's change going on in Jonah's heart. He begins to understand his sin and its consequences. He isn't justifying his sin, and he understands that not only had God sent the waves, Jonah realizes it was right for God to do so. But he also knows that while God sent the waves, God also saved him from the waves. Jonah deserved death, not deliverance, and yet God intervened and saved him. That's a big three-letter word there in verse 6, yet. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet, yet, yet you, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah understands that it's God who saved him, and he's becoming aware not only of his sin, but he's becoming aware of God's grace, God's deliverance, God's salvation. Why might God be teaching this to 
to Jonah. Why might our prophet need to learn this? Who else deserved death, not deliverance? The Ninevites. God was bringing Jonah face to face with a very vivid illustration of his sin. Perhaps now he'll have compassion on the people of Nineveh. Jonah was beginning to understand that he was no better than them. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. All of it. For everyone. With seaweed wrapped around his head, Jonah is waking up. That man in despair is now becoming a man of prayer. Like the prodigal son in the pig pen, he's coming to his senses. Point number one, Jonah awakens. But it doesn't stop there. Jonah also believes. That's point number two this morning. Number two, Jonah believes. Certainly there at the bottom of the ocean, Jonah felt like he's banished for his sin. Maybe you felt that way before. You have a sneaking suspicion that God is mad at you for something you've done. Or maybe something you haven't done. Jonah's facing this feeling of doubt, but what does he do? Well, he says there, I am driven away from your sight, yet, what does he do? I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah's fighting for belief. He's fighting for faith. I'm in despair. I'm running away from God. I'm on the verge of death. But even now, even seconds from death, finally, at last, after running from the Ninevites, I'm going to look to you, O God. And he does. Jonah looks to God. He mentions the temple because in the temple was the mercy seat where blood was sprinkled and where forgiveness could be found. The temple was God's dwelling place on earth. It was God's very presence. Jonah has given up fleeing God's presence. Now he's actually looking to God's presence. He knows he sinned, but he's well aware that God is also merciful and forgiving. Verse 7. When my life was fainting away, when I was there at the bottom of the ocean with seconds to live... I remember the Lord. How did Jonah do this? How did Jonah remember God's grace? And this whole prayer that we're reading that Chuck's read for us earlier in its entirety sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? If you didn't know that this prayer was in the book of Jonah, where else in the Bible might you think it comes from? The book of Psalms. We might even think it was one of the Psalms. What is Jonah doing? Well, he isn't taking a completed Psalm, and it doesn't seem like he's just making up the words on his own, but he's rehearsing the themes that come from various Psalms. There seems to be a reference to many of them. Psalm 3, 5, Psalm 16, 18, 31, 42, 50, 65, 88, and Psalm 120. You can find traces of those psalms right here. And the teaching of the Psalter is just flowing out of Jonah's heart. Thoughts on life and death. Thoughts on fear and faith. Well, how could these psalms be coming to Jonah's mind there at the bottom of the ocean and there in the belly of the fish? Well, the only answer is that 
Jonah really, really knew the Psalms. That he knew this part of Scripture that had already been written, and he was reading it. He was meditating on it. He was singing it with others. The Word of God was in his heart. So now in the ocean, in the whale, the Psalms are a fuel for Jonah remembering the truth and praying. He's rehearsing scripture and reminding himself that he's loved and that perfect love casts out fear. Redeemer Church, don't we want to remember that we're loved by God? Don't we want to be a people that remembers the truth of Christ's love for us? Don't we want God's perfect love to drive out and to cast out all fears? Well, if that's true, then we need to be regularly reading God's word. The Psalms in particular are a great place to dwell. It would be wise for each of us to walk through the garden of the Psalms regularly. I have found these words to be sweet companions in the dark nights of the soul. Pastor Tim Keller read the entire Psalter each month for 20 years. If my math isn't failing me today, that is at least 240 times walking through the Psalms. I bet after doing that, that the truths found in there have infiltrated his heart and taken root there. Friends, rehearse the truth. Like a theater performing performer rehearsing her lines over and over again so she knows them well when the performance starts. We Christians need to rehearse the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word over and over and over again. We need to to be reminding ourselves of God's love. Well, now you might not find yourself in a trial today. You know, you're singing these songs and you're hearing the plight of Jonah and you might be saying, actually, things are going really well. Praise God for that. But please hear me say this. We must prepare ourselves now in the good times because the bad times will come. There will be difficult days. Will you be ready? Being inside a fish is no joke. Jonah didn't know when God would deliver him or how, but he trusted. It was well with his soul because the truth was in his mind and heart. We need to be proactive and plan ahead, filling our hearts and minds with the word of God. Are you reading it? Are you reading it by yourself, for yourself? I mean, seriously, right now, I just want you to ask yourself, am I reading God's word? And what do I mean by reading it? Are your eyes just passing over the words so you can kind of check a box saying you did your daily Bible reading? Are you simply filling your mind with facts or anecdotal data? Or are you reading with your heart engaged, with your mind being renewed and washed by God's word, with your hands and feet ready to apply it to your life? Faith isn't automatic. You can't put it on autopilot. You have to actively push down on the pedal of belief. No, friends, we have the same choice Jonah did. We can either turn away from God Or we can look to the temple. We can look to God. We can go to his presence. Oh, would we be a people who would look to God's word to believe that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to confess it and to turn to him? Jonah awakens. 
Jonah believes, but Jonah also repents. That's the third point this morning. Number three, Jonah repents. Now, surely from the words we've read, Jonah felt like he was going to die in the water. He he encounters this fish. I'll be honest, I really don't like fish. I don't like to eat them. In fact, I never eat them. I don't want to get too close to them. I've been snorkeling a few times and I've been really nervous. My heart beats fast because I see those barracuda fish swimming around and I really don't want them to bite me. I'm worried that they're just going to bite off my fingers and swim away. Now, the closest I get to fish these days is when I walk through the fish market in Dira. Now, I know I've heard at a, in a kid's movie lately that fish are friends, not food. But I don't even think that's right. I just don't like them at all. I'm only willing to go to the fish market because I know most likely no fish is going to jump up and touch me. So I think being swallowed by a fish would be a huge nightmare. It's just terrible for me. I don't even want to think about it. But if I was drowning, if I was at the end of myself struggling for breath, my lungs filled with water, I'm passing out with seaweed wrapped around my head, waves tossing me to and fro, I think I'll make an exception to my personal rule of no fish contact. I think I would let that go. I think it would be okay. See, for Jonah, the belly of the fish was a place of safety. It was a good thing. The fish was his salvation. The fish was saving him. Inside the fish, Jonah was worshiping God and repenting of his sin. Verse 8, look what he now understands. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The word for idol that Jonah uses is literally translated empty nothings. It's a great word picture, isn't it? Empty nothings. I mean, nothing is not anything already. And Jonah says, know what an idol is? It's a nothing that's empty. What he's saying is it's ridiculous to trust in anything or anyone other than God. It's worshiping nothing. And even worse, it's a nothing that's, that's nothing, that's empty. Now, Jonah is coming to an understanding that when we prefer the empty, empty nothings, then we forsake the steadfast love of God. Actually, what he's saying here is when we pursue those empty nothings, we block, we, we block ourselves from the steadfast love of God. And that's because our idols, they promise hope. The idols promise joy. But it's all fake hope because they never, ever deliver on their promises. Redeemer Church, are there idols in your life that you need to destroy? You might not have a statue or a relic in your house that you believe holds spiritual power, but are you looking to something other than the steadfast love of God? If so, that's an idol. Are you a slave to the empty nothings of reputations, promotions, or financial security? Are you a slave to the empty nothings of worldly comfort or materialism? Are you a slave to the empty nothings of control or power? Is there something you need to confess, a sin issue you need to stop ignoring? Maybe you see yourself in the story very clearly and you're running away from God just like Jonah was. Smash whatever 
idol you need to confess. Don't keep it around your house. Don't keep it in your life. Don't tell it that you'll deal with it later. Now, Jesus was crushed on the cross for your sin. You don't have to be a slave to the empty nothings of idols any longer. You are a son or a daughter of the king. If you're a believer in Christ, you are a child of the king. Well, see how Jonah is repenting? It's various steps throughout. Look at another step there. Look at verse 9. Jonah expresses the response of a heart that's yielded to God. He says, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. I mean, Jonah's there in the whale. He's there in the bottom of the ocean. He's bringing a voice of thanksgiving. That's really incredible. And he makes a vow. He makes some kind of pledge. He says he's going to sacrifice to God, meaning I'm not going to sacrifice to these idols in my heart any longer. I'm going to go to the one true God. And he decides to obey God and to do it joyfully. It's not drudgery when you follow God. It's joy. His guilt is gone. I mean, some of you may be sitting here today going, well, pastor, you don't know how big my sin is. Well, friend, the Bible says that if you say that, you don't know how big God is. Jonah's finally getting it. In the verse 9, it's a direct quote from Psalm 3. Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah gets that Yahweh is the one who saved him. And he's also saying that Yahweh is the sole savior. Salvation comes from none other. It's not partly you. It's not partly God. It's not some other idol. It's not some other pursuit. But salvation comes from God. There's nothing you can contribute. It's 100% God. Our man Jonah, our prophet Jonah, is transforming. Here's something interesting. The number one reason some liberal scholars think Jonah didn't write this psalm himself is because it's not a prayer of petition. But it's a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. This boggles the minds of scholars. How can someone from inside a fish give praise to God? But Jonah does. God was doing something in his heart. God was, was, was breaking him, not all the way, but he was breaking him to make him, to make him into a man of God. And he gives praise to God from the water. He doesn't fix his eyes on his disgrace, but he fixes his eyes on God's grace. Grace triumphs over disgrace every single time. God's amazing and surprising grace is transforming Jonah's heart. And he turns away from his sin to God. This is what repentance is. John Fulmer at our partner church, United Christian Church of Dubai, used to say it this way. Repentance is taking God's side against your sin. Rather than arguing your way to grace, you say, God, you're right, I'm wrong. I'm actually going to take your side against my sin. It wasn't my circumstances that caused it. It wasn't someone in my life. It wasn't some sickness. And it certainly wasn't you, God, who caused my sin. It was me. 
I mean, that's repentance. That's taking ownership over your sin. That's taking God's side against your own sin. Repentance is not simply feeling bad about your behavior. This is really important for me to say. It's not simply feeling guilt. Because we can feel guilty in our sin when we're caught. But we can also feel guilty in our sin when we're not caught. But we just continue on doing it. Now, repentance certainly requires feeling guilty, but you can feel guilty and still love sin. You can feel guilty and not repent and just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into it. It's more than that. Repentance is not just a feeling. Pastor and author Michael Lawrence writes it this way. Real repentance is a new worship. It looks like a changed life, but that changed behavior results from a change of worship, not the other way around. Repentance is being convicted by the Holy Spirit of the sinfulness of our sin. Not the badness of our deeds, but the treachery of our hearts towards God. Repentance means hating what we formerly loved and served, our idols, and turning away from them. Repentance means turning to love God, whom we formerly hated, and serving him instead. It's a new deepest loyalty of the heart. Repentance is a matter of worship. It's a matter of the heart. When we repent, we're choosing to hate our idols. And we're choosing to love God. To love the God who has first shown us his steadfast love. Sin is turning your back to God. Repentance is doing a 180 degree turn back to God. And often God uses our trials to get us there, doesn't he? God has a future for Jonah, but the prophet needed a storm to get his heart right. C.S. Lewis once said, God shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to a deaf world. If you're going through a storm right now, your storm is God's blessing to you. Just like the captain yelling at Jonah, God saying, wake up, wake up, get up, call on your God. Oh friend, don't run away. Don't keep going towards Tarshish. It's not too late to repent of that secret sin, of that idol in your heart. Well, there are three things you must do to repent. If you find yourself right now in some secret, unrepentant sin, let me just give you three things to do to repent. Number one, ask God for forgiveness. Of course, repentance starts there. That's foundational. You have to go to God and own your sin and say, it's my fault to grieve that sin and realize that you have sinned against a holy God and you deserve death and judgment and to ask for forgiveness. Well, number two, Confess to someone. Confess to someone today. Go to a friend, a community group leader, another member of this church, an elder, even the person sitting next to you. Confess. Get it out in the open. Get the sin into the light so that it could die. And do it today. Even before you leave here, if you wait till tomorrow, maybe tomorrow you'll think, well, 
I'll just give it another day, and then another day passes by, and then another day passes by, and you never do it. Number three, do whatever it takes to cut off the sin from your life. Friend, do whatever it takes to cut it off. Remember, repentance is not just feeling bad. It's changing. Cut off whatever is so easily entangling you. And do it now. And that's why confessing to someone such a big help. You need people to come around you to help pray for you and keep you accountable. You can do all these things today. And friend, know that when you repent, when you repent, God doesn't sit back there on his throne and say, well, let me see what kind of case they're making for repentance. He doesn't think, well, this was a pretty bad sin. Not sure we can forgive this one. No. When you come to God in true repentance from your heart, grace always comes running to you. Mercy doesn't walk to you. Mercy runs to you. Oh, friend, turn to God. We see Jonah beginning to do that here. Jonah repents. He's saved from drowning, and now he's spit out onto dry land. Jonah deserved death and deliverance. That's the same for all of us. We all deserve death. But thankfully, Jonah was a picture. Jonah was an illustration of the one who paid for our punishment, the one who can pay for our sin. When Jonah was thrown into an ocean of God's wrath, the sea calmed. Well, the way we can be saved is trusting in Jesus, who is also thrown into a sea of God's wrath. Matthew 12 actually records the words of Jesus where he compares Jonah to himself. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus compared his death to Jonah. Jesus is saying, I'm the greater Jonah. Jesus wasn't in distress because he was a rebel, but because he was dying for rebels. And it wasn't just the work of evil men. It was the preordained work of God that led Jesus to the cross. And the second, Jonah didn't just come face to face with death. He wasn't just seconds from dying. Jesus actually tasted death. He tasted the full wrath of God upon himself. He tasted death. And then he wasn't just spit out on dry ground. On the third day, he was vindicated. And miraculously, he came out of the grave and rose from the dead. Now, friends, the Bible is clear that to receive this amazing and surprising grace for salvation, you must repent of your sin and trust in Jesus to save you. Every one of us deserve death for sinning against the holy God. But like God saved Jonah at the bottom of the sea, if you come to him in repentance and faith, he'll save you too. He'll save you for eternity now, the biggest miracle in this passage didn't happen in the belly of a fish, but in the heart of a man. It's nothing for a fish to swallow a man and to house him for three days. The bigger miracle is that Jonah's heart is being changed. May that be the miracle in your life today, too. Well, as the servers head to the back and the musicians to the front, let's go to our God in prayer as we prepare for communion. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, change our hearts. We are a stubborn people. Left to our own devices, we'll run to Tarshish every time. Bring us to the point of repentance. Would we confess our sin? Would we turn to you? For those that are here that don't yet know you as Savior, would they repent and believe and be saved? For those of us here who are followers of Jesus, would we search our hearts now? Would we bring any unrepentant sin out into the open? Would we cling to Christ every day? And as we approach the communion table, may the bread and the cup we eat and drink today, may it be nourishing to our souls. Would the cross of Christ be to us the wisdom of God and the power of our almighty Savior as we meditate on the promise of eternal life? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.